gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. We are in a season where we are just singing songs, whether in the culture or even in church, and often into those songs, the name Bethlehem comes up frequently. Bethlehem, the place where Christ was born. But we asked a question this morning, how did we get to Bethlehem? How did we get to this point in history at this specific city where God becomes man? How do we get to this point? As we think about Bethlehem and we think about this season, there's lots of questions and that rise out of it. And also, uh, as we sing and as we tell stories, and the, the question always comes up every year. How should we treat the question of Santa Claus? Every single year that comes up. By and large, I think that the myth that is Santa Claus is a relatively harmless one. I don't think it's that big of a deal. As long as, underline bold italic exclamation points, Jesus is not overshadowed in the process. Also to that, and specifically to the younger families out there, I want to give this encouragement. Where do you practically draw the line between myth and reality? Because if you continually talk about Santa Claus being real, real, and right alongside the story of the wise men and Jesus and Bethlehem coming, and then about eight or nine years old, ta-da, actually Santa Claus is not real. Well, is Jesus not real? No, he's real. What's different? I challenge you right now to think about the way you talk, even with the myths and traditions, which are relatively harmless in their right place, that you use language that clearly distinguishes between the myth and the tradition and the reality of God in the flesh stepping into our world, one of the greatest moments in history that for all of eternity we will sing praise about. You need to think carefully about this. As we come into this Christmas season, every single year, we in our home have to rediscipline our minds to make sure that we are thinking meaningfully on the incarnation by use of liturgy or prayer or going through Advent, but talking meaningfully about what Christmas is. And even as I thought about this December and what we are going to be talking about, I was praying, Lord, what do you want us to do this Christmas season? How should we talk about your Advent? And I want to give you four things that we're going to be talking about, one of which we talked about last Sunday. And by the way, wasn't Conrad and Bayway a blessing? What a blessing from the Word. And the first thing that I wanted to look at was the nature and the transcendence of God. And that's what I asked Conrad to speak on. And what a blessing he did bringing us out of that psalm, the transcendence and the nature of God. That was last week. This week, we're going to be talking about redemptive history. Remembering how God has moved to bring us to Bethlehem, to this point in history where His Son comes into the world. Now, next week, I want to look at the concept of God being in the flesh. The theological term that we use is the hypostatic union. How God can be both flesh and God and why that matters. I want to talk about that next week because the incarnation is just that, God in the flesh. 
The Eastern Orthodox Church for all of history saw the incarnation and not the cross as the epicenter of redemptive history, whereas the Roman Church, the Western Church, saw the cross as the epicenter of history. And the answer or the question is, which one is right? And the answer is yes, because they are inseparable events. God in the flesh is a requirement for what he did on the cross, and we'll talk about that next week. So God in the flesh and his divinity, that's next week. And then December 24th, which is Christmas Eve in the morning, we're going to be talking specifically what this baby came to do. So the nature of God, redemptive history, God in the flesh, and then what he came to do. But this morning we're looking at the question of Bethlehem. What brought us to this point? And when we think about the birth of Jesus, it is both curious and majestic. How did we get here? What was God doing? And to answer that question, let's take a few moments this morning and meet and listen to the testimony of Zechariah. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Now, before we read verse 67 to verse 79, here's a little bit of background. Zechariah is introduced right at the beginning of the gospel of Luke. He was a priest, a Levite. And he had the opportunity to serve in the temple. And because of the great number of priests, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. He was a priest of the Levitical tribe. He married a woman who is also from the daughters of Aaron. So she also from the Levitical priesthood. It is almost an extra measure of piety that he's going to marry within the Levitical priestly tribe. They were godly, law-keeping lovers of Yahweh, and we're told that right at the beginning of chapter 1, they are both anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises. They are not in the New Testament. I know that they are from your Bible standpoint, but at this moment, we are still in the Old Testament. We're under the Old Covenant. They are keeping the law, going to the temple, and expecting the Messiah to come at any time. They are also without child. They're advanced in years, way beyond childbearing years, and they have no children, which was a mark of, of shame. But he goes into the temple on his allotted day. He walks in. He begins to attend to be able to prepare for the worship that is going to take place. And there beside the altar of incense is an angel. The altar of incense is symbolic of the prayers of the saints. And it is no missing point that there the angel is standing and he says, your prayers have been answered, Zechariah, because you're going to have a child. Now, the emphasis, you might say, is that this revelation from the angelic emissary is that they're going to have a child. But actually, that's not the emphasis of the revelation. Matter of fact, in Luke 1.17, at the very end, as the angel gets done delivering this good news, he says that the purpose of this child is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what does Zechariah do with this information? Well, first he disbelieves, then he believes, and then he worships. Because you must understand that from the end of the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, we come to this point. This is the first word from the Lord in 400 years. First word. 
And they knew because he's a law-abiding Jew. He knows that before the Messiah comes is going to be a forerunner. That was the last word spoken by the prophet Malachi. And now it's happening. God has broken the silence. He speaks to Zechariah and says, your son is going to be that forerunner. And so Zechariah breaks into worship. And we find that song beginning in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Holy Spirit comes upon Zechariah, and the result is understanding, illumination, Scripture, worship. And the first thing he highlights, I want to give you five things this morning from this song. The first thing that Zechariah highlights is this. Number one, a praiseworthy God. A praiseworthy God. Blessed be. Now, this is a different blessed than when we find, for instance, like in Matthew 5, where we see blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the word makarios, which means happy are. But here it is eulogetos, from which we get the word eulogy, to eulogize. In other words, to recognize, to give praise and recognition to, in this context, he who is praiseworthy, who is worthy of all recognition. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He is worthy of worship. Like Brother Conrad started with us last week, the fact that God is awesome, transcendent. Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Your throne, O God, is far beyond and above anything and everything that we can see or comprehend. And then the psalmist says, When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? O God, this is who you are. This is who I am. And why would you recognize and look down upon me? Zechariah begins with who and what God is and all that God would condescend at all and speak to his people. All that God has conducted history itself to bring history to this point where the forerunner and then the Messiah will come. He begins with a praiseworthy God, number one. Number two, what else do we see in this song? We see that Zechariah understands that history itself is bursting with promise. 
Number two, history is bursting with promise. As he reads the Old Testament, Zechariah's prayer, if you, if you read through this, it is practically a running reference of Old Testament hopes and expectations. Remember, Zechariah has spent his life studying the Old Testament. He is zealous for the law, zealous for God. And now this moment comes and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And what does the work of the Holy Spirit do? It brings illumination of the word of God. And it gives understanding and connects the dots and says, oh, this is what this meant. And this is what this means. Inflame my heart to worship based upon what God has spoken in order to bring me to what God is doing. I'd like to point out here that the Holy Spirit is not an ambiguous force. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not some vague machination of emotion or, or some sort of thrill of religiosity, but rather the Holy Spirit. What is his job? Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's role in John 14 is to teach us all things and to bring to remembrance the things that Christ, that God has taught us. And so him being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some vague ecstatic experience, but all of this study of God's word is now brought into the light and Zechariah sees it with fresh eyes and he realizes of what God is doing and the meaning and it points towards a person, someone Something that is going to fulfill everything that has been spoken. Zechariah sees history bursting with promise. Let's take a look at some of those references. Because as you go through his song, it just jumps out at you. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which by the way is a common refrain used throughout the Old Testament. And then in verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That word visited conjures up the images of the Exodus, where in Exodus 4.31, it says, God has visited Israel. It reminds us of Egypt. And then in Exodus 19.20, the Lord came down. He has come down. He has visited, reminds us of Sinai. He has visited and redeemed his people. Isaiah 43, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation. One of the favorite phrases of the psalmist in Psalm 18, that the Lord God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Verse 69, but this horn of salvation is in the house of his servant, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, here comes the Davidic covenant, and here is what it says. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever Zechariah understands the promise, the covenant, and what was given to David, and he's bringing it out. God, you are working your will and keeping your promise. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, we should be safe from our enemies, verse 71. 
from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Verse 73. Look at those two verses, 72 and 73. Remember a covenant, which is a binding contract, an oath that he swore. How many ways can God say, what I am speaking is not just a common byword, but I'm making a covenant, an unbreakable promise. I am making an oath and a covenant. So deep is this covenant that in Genesis chapter 22, when God speaks to Abraham, he doesn't swear by the heavens or the angels or by the earth. It says in Genesis 22, verse 16, God said, by myself, I have sworn. I have sworn on my name. I have sworn with the unbreakable reality of who I am. And Abraham, I will bless you. I will multiply you. And in you, all the offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. He's speaking to his son, John, now, who's not yet born. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 in the Old Testament, it says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Verse 78 He's doing all of this to give knowledge of the salvation of his people. But verse 78, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Sunrise. That image of the sun rising in the east is again is another Old Testament allusion in Malachi chapter uh, 4 verse 2 where it says, the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This has tremendous imagery, and we'll come back to this. Pastor Kevin told me that every single year when we sing Hark the Herald and it says Son of Righteousness in the song, there's always people that says, oh, there's a typo. It should be S-O-N, Son of Righteousness. No, actually it's referring to Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, the sunrise, rising to give healing. Verse 79 to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isaiah 42, 7. He's coming to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And who is going to bring this way of peace? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He who is coming, who is called, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You think Zechariah knew his Old Testament? It is a running references of promises. He sees history bursting with promise. And now he is filled with the Holy Spirit and raised to ecstatic worship where he says, God, the moment has come. Everything that has been prophesied, everything that has been talked about, the moment has come. As we look at the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Old Testament, they proclaim God and his work and his gospel. 
Genesis talks to the foundations being lost, but then God blessing again. And really the whole point of Genesis is that there's future after the fall. There's, there's hope. God is working. He's chosen a people. He's made a promise. He's going to make it right. Exodus, this is God making a way. He is the delivering God. Leviticus, God choosing a priest who is going to act on his behalf. Numbers, this is God being with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. Deuteronomy, you might read Deuteronomy and say, wow, there's a lot of curses in this and and warnings, but the whole reason that Deuteronomy is overflowing with warning is because God's heart and desire is he wants to bless his people. That's his heart. He wants to bless his people. He's going to bless you. And he also wants you to know that which will remove that blessing. So even the Torah, the Old Testament, is just overflowing with this God who is working. As we turn to the Old Testament books of history and we look at Joshua, we see in the book of Joshua a God who cannot be stopped. And then you get to the book of Judges and that's where your reading plan dies. Because you commit to read through the Bible every year, you come to Judges and you go, what is there edifying in this? And you switch over to the Psalms, right? But what does Judges teach us? It shows the faithlessness of men, but the faithfulness of God, even through the worst of the worst of what mankind is. Judges tells us that God is faithful. Ruth shows us that God is gathering people. First and second Samuel, that God chooses a king. First and second Kings, even though there are bad kings, God will not be thwarted. The promise made to David cannot be undone. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, God has not forgotten his people. Job, that even in the pain, God can be trusted. Psalms, God wants to hear our heart cries. Proverbs, God wants to be seen in everything that we say and do. Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Solomon's, God wants to be in our thoughts, in everything we say and do. As we muse and as we think and as we consider, may God be on our mind. And then we switch to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zechariah. We look at the prophets and what is it overflowing with? Everything that God has spoken, doesn't matter how bad things are, we have expectation that God is going to do something. This is not all there is. The prophet's crying out and saying, God, come, how long? Then how does the Old Testament end? Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Final verse in the final book of the Old Testament. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 400 years of silence. And then an angel appears to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, the day has come. So Zechariah worships. History bursting with promise. And why did this God come? Number three, he's a God who comes to give. He's a God who comes to give and to bless. And Zechariah understood that. So we see a praiseworthy God. We see history bursting with promise. 
And we see that this God has come to give. Now, what has he come to give? As you look through these verses, in verse 68, he has come to give redemption. For he has visited and redeemed his people. You know what's fascinating about this? In, in theological terms, we call this proleptic speaking. You're speaking of an event that has not yet happened, but you're speaking of it in the past tense as if it already happened because you're so sure it's going to happen. Did I just confuse you? Right? In other words, God has redeemed his people. At this point in history, has God redeemed his people yet? No. But Zechariah says, I know, God, that you are so trustworthy, I can speak of it as if it's already happened. It's almost looking at the second return of Christ when he comes in glory and saying, he came. Why? Because I'm so sure it's going to happen. It's already in the past. He came to give and comes to give redemption. Verse 69, he comes to give salvation and deliverance. The horn of salvation. This is a powerful salvation. The horn refers to the horn of an animal because that was the image of strength for the ancients. He comes to give mercy. Grace is giving what we do not deserve. Salvation, love, blessing. That's grace. It's giving us something we do not deserve. Mercy is not giving what we do deserve. We deserve death and judgment and hell, but he doesn't give it to us. Instead, wants to give us grace. So he gives us redemption, salvation, mercy. Verse 77, knowledge of salvation. The religions of the world, Islam, Hinduism, animism, syncretistic Christianity and Roman Catholicism, all wondering the question of how am I made right with God? When we were in Israel, one of our guides Sweet man, Greek Orthodox, knew all of this stuff about church councils and history. And I asked him, I said, but how are you made right with God? And he stepped back and he said, that's a good question. And I don't think anybody can know that answer. And I said, well, brother, I'd love to show you how you can know that answer. He didn't get saved, but man, his heart was wide open. How can we know? How can we know how to be reconciled with this God? It is not ambiguous. It is spelled out in Scripture. He came to unveil, to reveal. This is how man is reconciled to God. He comes to give forgiveness, light, and peace. Now, how's he going to do all this? How, how will he... How will he fulfill promises? How will he give all of this blessing? Well, he must visit his people. He must come down. Number four, this is a God who comes down. A God who comes down. If you look at Zechariah's song here, You'll notice it's in a chiastic structure. In other words, you have two points that bookend the entire song. Look how he opens it. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. And then if you look down in verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. 
So the understanding of all of this wonderful truth is only if this God visits us, comes down, meets us where we are at. The first visit that we see in verse 68 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, refers to that first visitation of God. And what is that first visitation of God? It is Sinai in power, thunder, and lightnings. Man, God ordered up a storm for us right now for extrasensory understanding of this text. I mean, this morning as I was studying and I'm looking out the window and all of a sudden there was a bright flash of lightning and thunder that rumbled the entire neighborhood. As I'm reading this passage, and it's talking about the fact that the mountain thundered so greatly, the people ran in fear. And I'm thinking, I can understand why. But this is God coming down on the mountain. This is God coming down to meet man. This is God in power enthroned on high, meeting man at Sinai. And then through covenant, through covenant, coming to dwell in the midst of man, in the middle of the Israelite camp, but only in a limited fashion. The way is not fully opened because man is sinful. God is holy. But then there's a second visit that is pictured here. And this visit is pictured as a sunrise is the sun cresting in the east and the brightness of light shining and giving healing. This is almost certainly an allusion to Ezekiel 43, where Ezekiel has this glorious vision because the glory of God has departed. It's left. The world is dark. The temple has been deserted. But then Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 43, he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. Where does the sun rise? In the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. We have a visitation, a second visitation that is coming from Zechariah's standpoint. From our standpoint, it has come. This second visit is the promised one. The one who is the very glory of God. The one that in Hebrew says is the radiance of the glory of God. Here at the second visit, God is not coming in the might displayed at Sinai. But the sunrise and the glory of God is coming now in the flesh as a baby. Why? Why would God come in the flesh? What motivated him to visit his people? Well, it says, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, the sun is rising. Because of the tender mercy of God, he is drawn to come. The tender mercies of God in the Greek is a very vivid image. It has to do with one's bowels. The stirring of the innards and the gut. Why did God come down? Why, 
Why? Has he come in the flesh as a baby? Why has he come to visit his people? Because God's guts, God doesn't have guts, let's be clear, but it's vivid, right? Because his innards, his guts, his bowels are literally turning over on themselves. He's leaning forward. He says, I want these people. I want them to know me. I want them to experience my love. I want them to know salvation. It's not some sort of stoic divinity on Mount Olympus, but this is the yearning of God reaching down and saying, I want to come and no one can hold me back. Jonathan Edwards says, there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. To his very bowels, he is the one that delights in mercy. He's ready to pity those who are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. He delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and the grace that Christ has manifested does as much and exceeds all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than a candle. So is the love and the yearning of God for people. So why? Why is the sun rising? Why is God visiting? Because of the tender mercies of God for you and for me. So that you can have light and that you can be rescued from darkness, that you can, you can have peace and reconciliation with God. Why do we sing, joyful, joyful, we adore him? Why do we sing, hark the herald angels sing? We sing it because we have a God who visited us to show us his grace. And Zechariah is overcome with worship. He's moved out of love to come down this God he yearns in his very heart and being to visit his people. And so he comes to Bethlehem. Number five, final point. Bethlehem, the right time in the right place. I remember in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, and Frodo is admonishing Gandalf for being late to the party. Gandalf responds and says, a wizard is never late, Bilbo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Our God is not early. He is not late. He is right on time. He is never late. He is never out of place. 700 years earlier, before this time, 700 years, almost a millennia. The prophet Micah said in chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrata, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God is going to step down into the flesh in Bethlehem at the right time and at the right place. So as that time awaits, God regathers Israel from the exile and brings them back to the land. Alexander the Great unifies the languages and the cultures, and so Greek becomes the lingua franca of the world in preparation for the gospel. The Maccabees, the Jewish rebels, who reestablish Jewish life and temple life so that Jesus can come and showcase the fulfillment of the temple 
Rome uniting the nations. Right time, right place, and at the right moment, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Beit Lechem, the house of bread, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Accident? or divine prerogative. Bethlehem is the Old Testament coming to fulfillment. It is God keeping his promises. It is the actual place where the transcendent God became flesh and blood. Why God in the flesh? Why does that matter? Well, we'll talk about that next week. We may have to wait like Zechariah and the Old Testament saints did, but God is never late. Do you believe that God will show up at the right time and at the right place? And do you trust him even if it takes 2,000 years? But as we think on Christmas, do you believe the majesties of the incarnation and that this sunrise is none other than Jesus Christ himself, God coming to visit his people, coming to visit you, coming to visit me? so that we might have the knowledge of salvation. And he might bless us with all the blessings in the heavenlies. Oh, brother and sister, we can laugh at the man in the big red coat, but never may our storytelling eclipse the Jesus, Son of God, who is the sunrise of the glory of God coming to defeat death and rescue his people from their sins. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Let us pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray you would help me, help my brothers and sisters. May we see truly the blessedness of what Bethlehem means. And as we consider this God who comes in the flesh, we stop, we sing, we glory that in a manger 2,000 years ago came the one of whom the law and the prophets spoke. Comes God, very God, to bring us joy and salvation and hope. We ask your blessing upon the rest of our time today and in Jesus' name, amen.